0: Welcome to The Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. The Commercial Disco, we spend all of our energy exploring the commercialization of great ideas and research in tech and science that we produce here in Australia. Today, I'm talking to Rob Sutton, the Managing Director and Founder at Miragen Consulting. Welcome, Rob. Thanks very much, James. Okay, by quick background, you're a aviation engineer. You spent time in the Australian military and the army. You have spent time with a a defence prime and you set up Miragin Consulting six years ago, looking at creating autonomous capability with a focus on drones, robotics, AI. Can you just step us through the Miragin mission? What are you trying to achieve?
2: Well, I think the biggest thing that drives us is
1: we use drones to
2: help solve problems. Then the biggest problems that most organisations want to try and solve are reducing costs, improving capability and the one that really particularly drives us as a team is saving lives. So in a military sense drones are there to help keep our soldiers, sailors and aviators free from unnecessary risk of harm. So the logic is, is that instead of putting soldiers and sailors and aviators in the front line of combat, you can put drones instead. And then the humans are there to do the human things, but they're not exposed to those really, really difficult situations on the the front line. They're kept as safe as possible. In a commercial sense, it's similar in the sense that there've been a number of aviation accidents, one a few years ago around using helicopters to string power lines. The two aircrew in that platform were both killed. And what it's done is it's done a a big revision of the whole industry to have a look to say, well, why are we using helicopters? Because we can use drones in that context instead. So for us, that driver around keeping people safe, keeping people away from unnecessary risk of harm, is the major driver that all of the team have. We came out of my background in defence. So as you say, I was an aviation engineer. I worked across a number of helicopter types within Army. So the Tiger Helicopter, the Tour 6B, I was the project engineering manager for the Chinook F model, but I also spent two years at Army's drone regiment, the 20th Surveillance and Target Acquisition Regiment. And um, when I was there, one of the things that became really clear was how important and how powerful a technology this was for the soldiers on the ground. They often had to leave on patrols, and if they had overhead coverage from drones, it meant that they knew that if they got into trouble that they'd get a response really quickly that they knew what was going on, that they understood the area around them. It, just seeing how powerful that technology was in a military sense and how important it was to the soldiers on the ground, that uh, left a lasting impression on me. And then once I left Army, worked in defence industry for a little while, and really saw the rapid growth of the commercial ground market, particularly the hobby drones. and kind of put two and two together to say, well, the military's been doing all this work with drones. It's been really important to the soldiers on the ground. There's a potential to take the knowledge that I have from the aviation sector, take the knowledge that I had from the more drone sector, and use that to help entities, particularly in the commercial space. So bringing that knowledge together to help reduce costs, to help improve capability, and to help keep people safe. And that's been a big driver for us.
1: So drones, robotics, AI, they're all classic kind of dual use technologies in terms of dual use as in defense and commercial applications. So in Mirajin Consulting, your background is defense. Do you spend most of your time there or is there an even split? How do you manage the day-to-day and the opportunities presented in this country?
2: When we started, our view was that we would be 80% commercial and 20% defense. Right now, we're probably the other way around. We're about 80% defense, 20% commercial. One of the things that we found is that we know defence, we've come from background of defence, and so naturally we've drifted towards that. Defence are doing a lot of interesting things with robotics autonomous systems at the moment and leading the market in certain areas. But what we found is having that parallel knowledge, the knowledge that we've got about the commercial sector helps us provide answers in the defence sector, and the knowledge that we've got from the defence sector helps us provide knowledge into the commercial sector. And I think Having that passage of information between the two sectors, I think, is really
1: important. Recently, you made a presentation to the Indopac forum, the defense forum in uh, Sydney, where you talked a bit about the war in Ukraine and the use of drones and the role that drones have played in that conflict. And it's kind of interesting because that's a real takeaway from that conflict is obviously heavy drone use. It seems to have changed everything. But Drones have had a kind of a linear progression up to that point anyway, in active hot wars.
2: As a business, we focus on robotics and autonomous systems in general. So, we're multi-domain. We look at kind of air, land, and sea. And the presentation that I gave at Indopac was really focused around how Ukrainians had used drones and long-range fires in a combination to wrest sea control of the Black Sea over the Russians. So, right at the beginning of the war... There was this view that the Russian Navy massively outclassed the Ukrainian Navy. When Crimea fell to the Russians, the Ukrainians lost the vast majority of both their fleet and actually the personnel within their Navy as well. And the start of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022, they really didn't have a very large or very effective Navy, certainly compared to the capability the Russians had in the Black Sea. So when the war broke out, Russians effectively had sea control over the Black Sea. They could do whatever they wanted. And they were not prevented from doing that by Ukraine. But over time, what Ukraine has been able to do is to use a combination of indigenously produced long-range fires, long-range missiles, and indigenously produced drones to, firstly, one of the headlines was the sinking of the Moskva, the Russian flagship in the Black Sea. And that was done with two Neptune missiles and a TV2 Barakta drone. That was a, a huge lesson for every single Navy in terms of the vulnerability of these platforms. And it was also the start of Ukraine really pushing Russia out of the coastal regions of Ukraine. And then getting to a point where the Ukrainians were able to attack the Russian naval headquarters in the Black Sea, in Crimea, in Sevastopol, again using a combination of long-range fires and drones to take out air defence and to take out the headquarters itself, that's really limited the freedom of action that the Russians have in the Black Sea. So they've been able to use drones, they've been able to use long-range fires in combination to do something that traditionally would have been the domain of a surface Navy, a crude surface Navy. And they've kind of leveraged the asymmetric advantages that drones present in that space. They're cheaper, there's more of them, there's no people involved, so you can take greater risks. And that's gotten them to the point where they're at at the moment. In terms of the lessons for Australia, that's really the second part of what I tried to pull out in that presentation. And I think that's where there's some pretty powerful lessons that have come out of that. One is the fact that we have to adapt. So in a war like Ukraine, the Ukrainians act and the Russians react. The Russians act, the Ukrainians react. And that adaptation battle has been really important in driving drone use. So you've seen, for instance, in Ukraine, the use of the first person view, racing drones, dropping the grenades and so on. The Russian response is to put grills and armour onto their vehicles to stop the Ukrainians from being able to do that, and at the same time, ramping up the use of electronic warfare to really severely limit the range that Ukraine can operate. Major General Mick Ryan calls it this adaptation battle, this idea that one side acts, the other side reacts, and it just goes on in that way, and that really is driving innovation in a sense. The other thing that becomes really relevant about drones in Ukraine is this idea of economic mass. So Ukraine has a population of just over 40 million people. It's got an economy that's far smaller than Australia's, far smaller than Russia's, and they're very sensitive to the price of assets. So they don't have an economy that could support you know, multiple billion dollar air warfare destroyers, for example. They have limited funds, and they have to make the best use of the funds that they get but they also have to be able to do it at scale. They have to be able to do lots and lots and lots of them to be able to generate any kind of effect. And drones play a really good part in that, in the sense that it's all about economic mass. So being able to generate battlefield effects across the battlefield at scale, but at a decent price. And when you're talking $200 for a first-person view, race a drone, and you know, $30 or $40 for a grenade, and that takes out a, a million-dollar tank, Well, clearly, that's a great return on investment. The other kind of insight that I drew from that paper is that these platforms will be used against us. So when we go into our next comfort zone, these platforms guaranteed will be used against us. We're seeing that drones being used against Israel, for example. Even just recently, the US were forced to shoot down a couple of drones in the Middle East they will be used against us in whatever conflict we go into. And so that's something that we really need to be prepared for. And I don't think that we have been historically thinking about the threat that these systems pose to us, not just overseas in our conflict, but also at home. The final lesson that I drew in that paper is this idea that in order for drones to be effective, you have to have the ability to reconstitute them. So Ukraine is losing something like 10,000 drones a month the Australian military has probably, at a stretch, a little over 1,000 drones in its inventory. So, to lose 10,000 a month, how do we replace those, how do we generate them in the first place? And There's this idea that the three most important things in warfare are logistics, logistics and logistics. But if you don't have the industrial base that's able to produce the equipment that you need in the field, then you're going to fail. You're going to have a great day one capability. But where do you go after that when you have to reconstitute the forces that you're losing? And that's where the Australian industrial base becomes hugely important and the ability to produce these systems at scale. And if we can do that in Australia for a military purpose, then it also puts us in a really good position to be able to do it at scale in a commercial sense as well. So that idea of dual-use technology, that idea of having a really strong capability base is a key insight that's come out of the Russian invasion of Ukraine.
1: So let me just drill into that a little bit. You're saying losing 10,000 drones a month. We were talking earlier, you were saying that the Ukraine has a, a very rich history in the aeronautic space from rockets to aircraft. So if their industrial base, even with that kind of heritage, they wouldn't be replacing those drones through internal manufacturing, would they? Are these cheap consumer imported drones or are they a bit of both?
2: It's a bit of both. So they're really ramping up their internal capability to produce them. And the way that the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense is procuring those drones is allowing the rapid growth of an industrial base in the sense that basically they're taking any color. If it's a Ukrainian producer, then they're supporting them to grow capability. And at the same time, they're getting drones from everywhere else that they can get them from. So they're buying commercial-grade drones from China. They're also getting drones from places like the United Kingdom, from other places in Europe. Even Australia sent some drones over, the cardboard drones from Sitback. So it's kind of a combination of everything. They're pulling every string that they can get because they realise how powerful these technologies are. And they also realize that the longer they wait, the more Russia can ramp up the use of these technologies. And so the less of an advantage that they bring to Ukraine. So there's a little bit of a race against time here as well.
1: So let me ask you this. When we talk about the industrial base in Australia, we have industry here and certainly in terms of portfolios within the political context. We have industry and we have defense industry and we have defense and they don't always appear to be as synchronized as they might be or or working together as they might be. So do you have a view on how policy should be structured toward building the flat, generic industrial base that can also serve a defense industry?
2: Historically, defense has been very focused on platforms or platform-based capabilities. So this idea of a joint strike fighter or buying a warfare destroyer, really looking at the platforms. and. When Defence does procurement, the procurement is guided by firstly the Defence white paper and then aligned with the white paper is I think called the Integrated Investment Program, the IRP. And the IRP sets out all of the different projects that Defence will pursue in order to generate the capabilities that they need in the white paper. What the IRP does is it says, here's a project, here's the funding associated with the project, here's the start and finish dates for the project, and here's the outcomes that we desire as a result of that. So it becomes, again, very focused on project by project, and typically those projects may run over multiple years, in fact, sometimes even multiple decades. What that means is, firstly, that each project is discrete. So a project is meant to acquire all of the capability that is needed in order to generate the effect that they want from that particular project. So they start at the beginning, they kind of start from scratch. They're not looking at it in the context of a broader industrial base. And then the project manager is typically driven by a need to reduce project risk. So if they're a good project manager, they will reduce project risk, project risk to project schedule, to project outcomes, to project budget. And typically the way to do that is to go and purchase something that is already proven and already exists. And so there's a natural inclination in the way that Australia does procurement for defence to procure systems that are overseas systems because there's a little bit of a chicken and an egg situation where if you're not supporting an Australian defence base, then you don't get proven systems. If you don't get proven systems, you buy those systems from overseas. If you're buying those systems from overseas, you're not supporting an Australian defence base. There's a lot of talk in defence around this idea of Australian industry capability, which is typically the mental model for that is, is that Australian small, medium enterprise will fit into a global supply chain. So the idea of someone like Mirand or Quickstep, manufacturing components of the Joint Strike Fighter, that's seen as a really good step for Australian industry because we're plugging into a global supply chain and we're generating defence exports. and. That is true and that is good for the country and that is valuable. What's missing is that next step is to say, well, how are we actually generating capability to design, to manufacture, to support these capabilities internally? And in the case of something like the Joint Strike Fighter, even though we're a more than a trillion dollar economy, that's probably not something that we're going to do. In the case of robotics and autonomous systems, drones, Clearly, that's something that we can do. We've got the industrial base, we've got the skilled people, we've got the capabilities to do this here. What's missing is the intent to support and grow the factory rather than the platform.
1: Yeah, okay. That's an interesting way to put it. If you're trying to build, not even sure of the terminology in defense terms, but if you're trying to build the kind of horizontal capability as opposed to building the platform, as you've just mentioned, we have seen in very recent times some fairly fast moves on behalf of defence around drone tech. I'm thinking specifically of these undersea drones. They've, they've really got moving on building that. But you're saying that is also taking a platform approach?
2: That's um, Warfare Innovation 80 and the work that they're doing with Andrew and Sea and 2 Robotics on the subsea uncrewed systems. I think that's excellent. And there are other sectors within Defence that are doing really good work, like Robotics and Autonomous Systems Implementation Coordination Office, so-called RICO, and in Air Force, the Jericho section. They're all doing really good work in terms of advancing innovation. Even the replacement to the Defence Innovation Hub, the Advanced Strategic Capabilities Accelerator, even though that's still not quite stood up, I think the mandate for that is excellent. What's challenging is there's a bit of a disconnect between the work that they're doing in the front end of innovation and coming up with these ideas, and then the actual delivery of capability to the warfighter. So, for example, the work that Andrew is doing around the dive platform, that's still just an experimentation. There's no project that that's associated with. There's no plan at the moment to turn that into a large-scale capability for defence to use. That will come, but right now what defence industry is waiting for is the update to the Integrated Investment Plan as a result of the Defence Strategic Review this year. And that update to the IIP will make it clear about firstly what projects are going to be funded and what projects aren't, and how then robotics and autonomous systems in general fits into the overall force structure that ADF is trying to generate. So, we're doing the front end stuff. We're doing pretty interesting work in the front end stuff is how do you get that then into the into the actual battle?
1: So as someone who has worked in defense or worked in military and has gone into the commercial world and kind of straddling the two places now, how do you think in this cross sharing of ideas or even context like between defense people and defense needs and industry people and industry expertise, that Sharing of information, I want to say, how do you think that's going? But those silos, or historically, what has been silos, I know there's a lot of work being done to try and marry these things. How do you think that's going?
2: I think there's still a degree of work that needs to happen there. And again, particularly in the robotics on time system space. So, as an example, Mercy Huusik has been doing excellent work around the roadmap for robotics within Australia. Is a very supportive, very strong advocate for the growth of the robotics industry in Australia. What's missing in the conversation, in a sense, is the fact that defence is by far the largest customer for robotics and autonomous systems in Australia, and therefore has a very significant role in creating, growing, supporting the ecosystem. And every time they make a decision to procure items overseas. That has an impact then in terms of the funding that's available to the robotics and autonomous systems industry in Australia, not just in a defence sense, but also in a commercial sense. So there's plenty of examples where I can think of where startups, where small businesses, where medium businesses are trying to grow, trying to build out their commercial capability. And part of their planning has been a thought that they would get involved in defence and they would be able to leverage the funding that was coming through defence as part of their growth plans because obviously scale for these businesses matters. The the bigger they are, the more they can do. And right now that connection is not strong. And in fact, with the closure of the Defence Innovation Hub, that's resulted in a lot of particularly small business in Australia really suffering because that funding pathway has been paused And for a small business, a six month pause or a three month pause in cash flow could be fatal.
1: Yeah. it Makes it tricky. Okay. So look, we've spent a lot of time talking about defense in relation to drones and robotics and the AI work that you do. Let's just finish up on this. When we look at uh, commercial opportunities in Australia, where are you doing the most work? Like in what sectors? I know you've done some work in agriculture and other areas. What's exciting right now? What sectors are showing the most interest?
2: I think what's happening is, generally speaking, in the sector, there was a a large growth of operators that were able to do the relatively small, relatively straightforward things. So, for example, real estate photography, it would cost $2,000 to go and get a license, $2,000 to go and buy the drone, and then for the sake of five grand, you are kind of set up as a drone real estate photographer. And there's been a lot of companies that have established in Australia to do that kind of work. And then that rolls on into things like asset inspections and surveys and all of that kind of work. What we're starting to see is a growth in higher order applications. So drones that are bigger, drones that can fly further, or drones that can do more complex operations. So things like Surf Life Saving New South Wales, for example, is exploring a, a long range drone that can go and spot sharks and spot you know, swimmers that are in danger all up and down the coast. And that is a very different capability to the $2,000 drone. That is orders of magnitude more complicated. It requires a more sophisticated organisation. It requires more expensive, more complex platforms. And then all of the enables that go with that, like testing and certification and all of that kind of work. The other things that we're seeing with drones are getting bigger. So we're starting to see talk of drones that can carry hundreds of kilos worth of payload, even thousands of kilos, really good in terms of the drone delivery. And one that's particularly exciting for folk in Queensland is the advent of advanced air mobility, so air taxis, with the intent that when the Brisbane Olympics happens in 2032, that the hope is that we'll see kind of widespread use of drone taxis as part of that, which would be fantastic.
1: All right. Rob Sutton, Founder and Managing Director of Marriage and Consulting. Thank you very much for being on the Commercial Disco with me today. It's been a fascinating conversation.
2: Absolute pleasure, James. And um, I guess I just want to close with that message of supporting Australian ecosystems, supporting Australian industry is absolutely crucial. If we want to have it, if we want to have an industry, if we need an industry, then we need to support it. It's not going to appear by magic. So I think that would be the message that I want to leave
1: is we absolutely have to support Australian industry. That is a fundamental theme of this podcast. So thanks very much, Rob Sutton. That's no flesh, James. All the best.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation and public policy, visit innovationOz.com. And stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead.